All right, we are continuing our study of evangelism by Jesus because the whole idea for us is to learn how Jesus evangelized. What did Jesus do when he met the lost? How did Jesus treat the lost? Because this is what we need to understand. So many of us don't know how to do this. Um, and we don't have good paradigms in our life. Well, we couldn't have a better one than Jesus. And so today, we're going to see about the wealthy young ruler. Um, and this is found in several passages in the gospel. Uh, and we're going to refer to Luke chapter 18 as our principal reading. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, that was Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. It's amazing that lightning didn't come down from heaven at that moment. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So let's understand something right up front. Jesus is not saying that if you're rich, you're not going to go to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus here speaks about idolatry. Idolatry, the fundamental commandment, meaning love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with everything that you have. Love God first. And what you see here is Jesus is speaking about putting money or possessions or affluence, or I'll even elaborate it. It could be family. It could be anything in your life, putting anything ahead of God. God must come first. Nothing else can displace God. And so this is, this is important uh, for you to understand this. Uh, and so when this man, and this is very different from the prior study, uh, when we were speaking with the Bible teacher who wanted to engage Jesus in a theological debate, this is not that. This is somebody who is sincere, when you read this scripture, who is sincerely looking to inherit eternal life. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating that you see this question being asked several times now, how do I inherit eternal life? Obviously, Jews of that period, some of them believed in eternal life. Uh, we know that, that the uh, Pharisees believed in life after death. And so this young man was probably a member of the Pharisee group. And so he did believe that there was a life after this world. And so he's asking Jesus, how do I inherit it? Yes, I know I'm a Jew. Apparently he's a good Jew. He's a, most likely a sincere young man, a leader in the synagogue. He's wealthy, and so what must I do? How do I inherit eternal life? Um, and it's interesting at the point where he asked this question, because if you, if you read before, you will see that Jesus is now about to leave this town. Jesus is about to walk out, out of here, and this man basically, we know from, 
from Mark when Mark writes about this, that this young man falls at the knees of Jesus. He falls at his knees. Uh, and so he sincerely asks this question, Rabbi, good teacher, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? And so it's almost the man's last chance to ask this question. And so it's interesting to see uh, how Jesus responds. Um, and so we have this picture of a young guy, very wealthy, uh, obviously spiritual, earnest, a person who's a, been entrusted with governance in the, in the uh, synagogue. Uh, I, we can assume that he's immaculately gro- groomed, all of the uh, accoutrement of, of wealth. He probably has it all. Now he's kneeling before Jesus with this burning question in his heart. What must I do to inherit eternal life in verse 18? Uh, and so most of the wealthy people that come into Jesus' purview do not ask this kind of question. Uh, some of them, some of the questions that have been asked, do I, should I pay taxes to Caesar? You remember that, right? Should I pay taxes to Caesar? That's found in Luke 20. Uh, why do your disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath? In other words, challenging Jesus again, Luke 6. Um, the lady that was caught in adultery. Shouldn't we stone her as the law of Moses indicated? Another indication of how people challenge Jesus. But this man's question was not a trick. This man's question was sincere. Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And so what does it tell us about this young man? And I think this is important because you're going to face people like this who are going to wonder the same thing. Is there a heaven? Does everybody go to heaven? What I've found in life is that more and more I speak to people, it's amazing that most people think that everybody is going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven. Well, the sad reality is no, not everybody is going to heaven. Uh, and, and the thing is, there's no universal way. You can't do your good works and get into heaven. You can't, you can't worship the way you want to worship. You can't worship your small God with a small G and expect to get into heaven. Uh, and it was interesting because uh, the last words, if you read the, the uh, Isaacson book on Steve Jobs, which was a fascinating read, Uh, The very last words of Steve Jobs, and this was revealed by Steve Jobs' sister, uh, and don't read some of the other things that say that they were the last words. That's not true. The very last words, as indicated by his sister, which was in the book, as he's ready to die on the bed, just as he before he passes uh, from this life into the next life, were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Now, Steve Jobs was not a Christian. Steve Jobs never believed in God, right? So somebody said to me, wow, that means to me, that means to me he's probably going to heaven. Oh, wow. I said, well, not necessarily. He could have been met by angels who were escorting him to a transfer station. Oh, wow. The bottom line is the reality, the the reality will become a sad fact. It will become a sad fact. And that's one of the things we want to speak to the lost world. We want to talk to them. So this young man was obviously feeling inadequate in his spiritual preparation. 
or, or else he wouldn't have asked the question. He's in the synagogue. He's a leader in the synagogue. Wouldn't you think a guy who's a leader in the synagogue would, would be secure in knowing how to inherit eternal life? That's fact number one. That means that you may even have people that go with you to church or Bible study who still have questions. They're not sure. You need to be attentive to that. You need to be aware and sensitive to that. Just because people go to church with you or go to Bible study doesn't mean that they have secured their understanding, their security of God. So that's number one. That's the first thing. Uh, we also know that he's siding here with the Pharisees rather than the Sadducees. And you know those were the two main religious groups. The Sadducees did not believe in a life after death, but the Pharisees did. And so clearly that's where he was. And he believes, as you read this, that eternal life is something that one merits through his efforts. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? What steps do I have to take? How much money do I have to give away? What kind of good works do I have to do? How do I have to embrace people in order to inherit eternal life? And that's really what so many people do, uh, and, and they understand that. And so what you need to be able to convey to people, the way Jesus conveys to people in this section, uh, is the fact that there is no one good but God. Oh, Jesus does that so well here. Can you imagine? Everybody knew about Jesus. I mean, everybody saw what he did. And so here the, the, the Bible, um, the wealthy man says, good teacher. It's a recognition of who Jesus is. You're good, good teacher. And Jesus deflects it immediately because Jesus is going to teach him about real goodness. And so what does Jesus say? Don't call me good. There is none good other than God. So the first thing that that does is say, don't define good by relative humanistic standards. Goodness is not defined by you comparing yourself down to somebody down the street. Goodness is defined one way. When you look in the mirror, you should see Jesus looking back at you. And when you see Jesus looking back, you bow your head because you recognize you could never be good. Even as you're saved man, knowing that you're going to heaven, you're still not good. It's just that God has cloaked you with the filtering lens of Jesus Christ. And through that filtering lens, he sees, he sees you uh, through the lens of Jesus Christ, and that's how you become good. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. If you want to understand how God looks at the righteousness of man, that defines it for you. Uh, none of us, none of us are going to get to heaven, uh, get to see Jesus because of our righteous acts. That will not take place. And so Jesus says it very clearly here. No one is good except God himself. Now, there are some people that say that when Jesus said that, that meant that Jesus wasn't divine. That's foolishness. That's not the case. Jesus is deflecting from this man's mind the understanding that God alone, God sitting in heaven alone, is good. But he didn't say that he wasn't good himself. 
but he's deflecting it so that the young man focuses truly on understanding what this high measure of goodness is. There is no relative measure of good. And so that's why Jesus said no one is good except God alone. And so Jesus is teaching this lesson that unless he grasps it, unless he grasps that there is no relative standard of goodness, he will never really understand what salvation is about. Because otherwise, he'll think that he has merit on his own without accepting Christ. He'll think that without bowing before the throne of God and asking to be forgiven and accepting Jesus, he thinks that he's good enough to get in. And I submit to you that many of the people that will come across your radar screen are going to fall into that category. And so you need to see how Jesus answers this uh, and speaks about it. And what's interesting here is that Jesus in this story does not specifically answer the man. He poses questions. He poses questions to let the man introspectively look at his heart. He never gives him the specific prescription, not yet, uh, but tells him, tells him. And so what you see here is how Jesus responds to the lost when he looks into the heart and he sees what the heart needs. Um, and so what does this mean? There are some three important points here that you see uh, in this meeting with this young man and Jesus. First, the, he meets Jesus with gracious praise. It's legitimate. It's sincere. Second, Jesus' response is not the expected gracious reply, but seemingly off the wall, jarring and, anticip- and unanticipated. Meaning what? Good master. You are a good man. And instead of Jesus saying, thank you very much, I really appreciate your words of affirmation, Jesus responds in a really jarring way. All right? Jesus, I'm not good. There's no one good but God the Father, meaning effectively look at yourself. Don't take this false standard of goodness that you've lifted in your heart, but see the real standard of goodness. Understand that only God alone is good. And when you understand that only God alone is good, you recognize that you have no merit. You have no merit to expect that you will be where God is unless you adopt what God wants you to adopt. And then what you see here is a a lack of spiritual understanding. And this is important for you. Meaning what? Meaning people who could be steeped in religiosity. He was a ruler in the synagogue. He did not get it. He did not get it. Uh, He didn't understand that only God was good. And so Jesus doesn't exchange pleasantries. He comes right to the point and teaches in a completely unexpected way. Uh, And this kind of analysis that's going on here uh, really could be viewed this way. If you look at the outline, I, I, I draw it there. Uh, it might be first, well, what's the first part of the analysis? Well, Jesus, is, as he's speaking this, he would expect the young man to say, to think of this. What is true goodness? We throw this word around all the time without understanding it. What is true goodness? Who really is good? We miss the point of what true goodness is. Well, then what are the consequences of recognizing that only God is good? Well, if only God is good, then where do I stand? If only God is good, then therefore, deductively, I cannot be good, meaning I am far from good. Uh, And so what you see here 
is uh, Jesus does not answer the man's question about whether he is good. He reflects it to God. Uh, And so Jesus responds with his own question. Why do you call me good? And that's one of the things we see as Jesus evangelizes. Meaning what? Meaning instead of pouring in a series of legalistic statements, Jesus responds with a question. Why do you call me good? Who do you consider to be good? You see how Jesus looks into the heart and how he relates to people uh, through questions. And so really... This question becomes an indirect, indirect claim by God, by Jesus, that he's God. Because if, in fact, this young man looks at Jesus and says, you really are good, and Jesus says, only God is good, then therefore, I'm God. Therefore, I'm God. And so you see this as, as this becomes one of the early indirect claims that Jesus is, in fact, uh, God himself. And so, as you understand this analysis, uh, then the, real, the next question becomes, well, what about you? What about you? If real goodness is only God alone, and you realize that therefore you are not good, then what are the consequences? What are the consequences for us? What are the consequences to you, a young man, who may be a leader, a religious leader in the synagogue? Uh, what about you? And so Jesus then helps the young man by summarizing the second table of the law. Now, the first half of the table of the law is about our relationship with God. The second half is about our relationship with each other. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. All of this is found in Luke 18, verse 20. What Jesus desires to do here with his summary of the law and and human relationship is to get the young man thinking about his failure to keep the commandments. Think about your failure to keep the commandments. Don't tell me that you have kept all the commandments because the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. And so if the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet, then coveting, which effectively is a mental sin, it, it lapses and grabs all the other commandments, and makes all the other commandments not merely physical, but mental. Meaning what? Meaning adultery can be committed in the mind as you lust. Meaning murder can be committed in the mind as hatred and gossip and slander. All right? And theft can be committed in the mind as you covet somebody else's good. And it's good. So as you understand this, as you understand this, you begin to see, I haven't, com- I haven't kept any of the commandments. Yes, I haven't physically broken them, but God demands much more than a physical application of the law. So much more. And in terms of honoring your mother and father, that's so much broader than that. It doesn't mean that you respect them. It means that you take care of them their entire life for whatever they need. They're never out of your purview. They're to- you have a total responsibility. Have you lived your life like that? So many of us say we understand that we've fallen short. None of us has lifted this way. Nobody can live this kind of a life. All of us have had these mental lapses, every one of you. I told you that even as I get ready to get out of the bed in the morning, I'm already sinning in my mind. Already. 
I think about what I'm going to face and where I'm going and what's happening, and already there's a number of sins that have just lapsed in there. We are incapable of living a sin-free life. Let me repeat that for you. We are incapable of living a sin-free life. I don't care if you're Billy Graham. You understand? I don't care to what heights God raises you and uses you. You are incapable of living a sin-free life because even as you're saved, you carry around this bag of flesh and the carnal nature, and that's the nature of what it is. And so there is going to be this dichotomy constantly. You're going to know what you should do. You're going to want to do the right thing, and yet you're not going to do it. And that is why you need Jesus. That's what it's about. This is the message to give a lost world. No one but Jesus. And so Jesus is trying to teach this man, teach these lessons, bring it home, so that this man will understand exactly what's, re- what's expected of him. Uh, and so Jesus is already saying to you, you're not good. Even though he doesn't say you're not good, his, his analysis is only God's good. So immediately you, you reflect back. And so just like so many people today, this young man is uh, unaware of the fact that his goodness is not determined by relative goodness, but by absolute goodness. Turn to Romans chapter 3, please. Verse 23. We'll start with verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone who has ever walked in this world has fallen short of the glory of God. Make no mistake about it. And so this young man is unaware of this. He's unaware of the total and absolute goodness of God. Uh, And so Jesus is telling him, you did not, without saying it, you did not follow all the commandments. You have forgotten the commandment, the 10th commandment about coveting, meaning that God puts your mental thoughts to the test as being part of the commandments. And so God demands that we look at the righteousness of God. Adultery is not just an outward act, but it's the lust of the eyes and the mind. Murder is not just about murdering someone. It's about slander and gossip and and, and evil thoughts. Theft is not merely the stealing of another person's good. It's coveting them. It's, it's, it's coveting their reputation or ability or ruining that reputation or ability out of jealousy or greed. And we already talked about honoring one's parents. And so it's clear we cannot claim, we cannot claim to have followed the commandments until we have understood and um, obeyed them perfectly. This is what Jesus is teaching this man without condemning him. Do you see this? Do you see how beautiful this is, the way God does it? He asks him questions. He points to the, to the picture of God. And then he leads the man to, cl- to come to the inescapable conclusion that I'm not there. I know, Jesus, when I met you first and I bowed before you, I said, I really, I, I followed all the commandments. But anybody who would have been part of this dialogue would understand immediately, I'm not there, Lord. I'm not there. I'm falling far short of the mark. That's how God wants you to speak to people. Don't condemn them. You don't sit there and say you're going to hell. I hope you like hot places. (laughs) You don't do that. Instead, you talk about the fact that only God is good. 
Only God is good. There is no relative goodness. And when people begin to step back and think about their legalistic backgrounds, well, I know the commandments I've lived up to. Really, you've lived to the commandments. You've lived to the commandments. What about that 10th one? What about that 10th one? That mental commandment. That mental commandment that's only between you and God. Have you done with that? Oh, well, that could be a problem. Oh, yeah, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Then when you start sliding back and see what Jesus said about lust, oh, I've never, I've never been faithful my whole life to my wife. Yeah, that's right. But your mind has slept with a thousand women. Your mind has slept with a thousand women. So don't go, somebody said only a thousand? Yeah, that's right. That's because you're a Christian. We set some limits. But that is the point of this. You understand? That God is raising our eyes. Now it's not just looking at Herb down the street. He's a loser. He's a lousy husband. He's not a nice, oh, I thank you I'm not Herb. Oh, God, I'm so holy. Instead, now you look in the mirror and, oh, no, Jesus is looking back. And I can't look at Jesus because Jesus sees into my heart. And now I have to bury my, hand, my head. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. And that's really what this is about. As you speak to a lost world and you see how Jesus does it. As you see it. And so Jesus is, is seeing this man. And he loves this man. There's another gospel part, uh, speaking of this, in Mark where it says Jesus loved him. When he said, uh, I've lived up to all these commandments my whole life. And it says there, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. He loves you. He loves us. And as he sees people who are trying to come to terms with where they are, Jesus loves them. But recognizing that they still need to be given the truth. And so you have to, how do we treat people when we're wounding them, inspiring them to see Jesus, inspiring them to understand that there's a greater call on their life? We have to surround everything that we do in love. Do not pronounce judgment. Do it the way Jesus did. There's none good but God. Nobody has lived up to the commandments. You forgot that 10th commandment. And so you see it. Uh, and so Jesus says, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. Reflect on those commandments. If you want to live by the law, you think the law is going to save you? And by the way, the law never saved a single person in the history of the world. The law doesn't save the law reminds us of the grace and love of God. Because when you see the law, you know I can't live it. And you bow in submission and you say, Father, I can't do this. I'm too weak. I have a sin nature. It's impossible for me. And then he pours the grace of Jesus Christ into your life that allows you to be strengthened, to walk the kind of life that God wants you to walk. And so you understand this is seeing this. And so after this man says this and Jesus shows him who God is, he's still not ready to come to Jesus. That's how people are. I'm still good. I'm still good. I'm still there. All right? Still there. This man has not yet really reflected, still yet in this process. And this becomes a process. One of the things I want to show you is that this guy leaves Jesus walks away without making a commitment to become a Christian. Now, we don't know who this man is. There is some secondary evidence in other writings in the second century 
that indicate that he might have been Joseph of Arimathea. All right? There's some secondary evidence that he might have been Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Pharisee, who sat on the Sanhedrin, who was a, a, a high religious leader, who was considered to be the wealthiest man in Jerusalem. We don't know. And you know that Joseph of Arimathea came to the cross and take the body of Jesus Christ. You know that. And so we don't know, but that's, that was evident in writings in the second century. But in this encounter, when Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, and I love Jesus. You think it was only one thing I lack? But Jesus doesn't say there's a thousand things wrong with you. <laughs> you understand? You see how God is? Yeah, there is a thousand things wrong with you, but I don't need God to tell me that. I should be telling that to myself in confession as I look in my heart, but instead Jesus looks out in love. One thing, one thing you lack. Go and sell. Sell everything and give to the poor and come and follow me. Now, what I love about this as you take this apart, is notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, go and sell everything that you have and then give it to the Jesus of Nazareth Foundation. <laughs> In other words, Jesus wasn't looking to pad his own nest. That's what you love about Jesus. Go and give to the poor. Meaning what? Meaning, as Christians, as men of God, our obligation is to go and take care of those who are without, those who are in need, those who are lost, those who need mercy, those who need justice. Go and give to the poor. The poor there has a very expansive meaning, meaning not just poor in poverty, poor in spirit, poor in leading uplifting. Go and take care of those who are lost and then take up, then follow me, become my disciple. Uh, and, and, and so this, this verse 22 is amazing. When Jesus heard this about I've given, I've followed all the commandments from the beginning, when he said this, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, think about this. Uh, Jesus is giving this incredible formula. If you go and sell everything that you will have, instead of everything that you have here in this world, which will eventually be lost, you will effectively have transferred it to heaven because now you will have treasure in heaven. I would call that the most amazing quid pro quo, as they say in Latin. Quid pro quo. What's the deal, Jesus? Quid pro quo. Go and give it away. Go and sell it all. And whatever you have done, I will transfer that to heaven. And then come and follow me. Now, what does this mean? This mean Jesus saying in this statement that if you have uh, affluence, that Jesus wants you to give it all away and wind up going out in the curb. Is that what Jesus is saying? He wants you to become homeless. I don't want you to have any goods or I don't want you to have any money. 
Don't read it like that. Don't ever read it like that. Jesus never told people that. This was one of the very few places where Jesus makes this statement that he does here. And he does it because he sees the heart of a guy who's in love with his possessions. And I'm sorry to say, but churches are full of people like this who are in love of their possessions or their stature or their standing. It doesn't just end with possessions or money. It's far more expansive. It's the raising up of self. I want to be respected. I want to be looked at with respect. I want to be looked at as a leader. I prize that. Yes, but do you prize it to such an extent that it's far greater than your relationship with God? Or how about your family? Do you put your family in a greater place than God. One of the saddest things for me is when I have really well-meaning people and they'll have their kids come and visit them. They'll come, they'll come and visit them. And then I don't see them on Sunday. I don't see them on Sunday. Well, where were you? Oh, well, my, my kids were in town. And that's great. But what kind of example are you given when your kids are in town? The fact that you always go to church, now you stay home? Or why don't you take your kids and bring them to church with you? Or as I'm glad what a lot of people do here, they bring their guests here to this class. Listen, you want to be having a lasting legacy? Do you want to show Jesus what you value in your life? It's not the relationships of this world, your family. God bless you. God gave you a family. But don't ever, ever put your family above God. Don't ever. That's part of this lesson too. Understanding as Jesus is drilling down, showing without being condemning, without deming. And so uh, Jesus recognizes that for this particular young man, that he needed to be demonstrated without judgment. He needed to demonstrate that he was enslaved by his wealth. He was enslaved by his wealth. Uh, and so that was the point here that, that God is trying to make. He's trying to make it. And so Jesus says to him, there is still one thing that you lack. You have to go and sell it all. You have to give it away to the poor. And so the question becomes, who do you live for? What do you live for? What is the purpose of your life? All of this reflects back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Oh, God. Oh, God, forgive me. That was why those Pharisees during those times would have a little bag around their heart, in which, around their neck, in which they would have the commandments in there written down. They call them phylacteries, all right, phylacteries. And in effect, the idea of that was that they would be remembering the commandments. Well, guess what? The only thing they remembered is that they had something hanging on their neck. I got something hanging on my neck. What is it? I think it's some commandments. But I got it on my neck. 
You understand? That's like a lot of us today. We walk around wearing a cross. Yeah. Is the cross in your heart? Have you given God everything? Have you bowed to him in submission? You see how Jesus reaches out to the lost in, in a way that we, we never really could understand as much as he's done and shows us. Uh, and so how do you say it? Who do, do you really worship God? Have you put God first? You want to inherit eternal life? So here's the secret. Jesus never tied it up and set it in a nice, neat bow. He left the young man to consider it. And the young man in this passage says that he walked away sad. Of course he walked away sad because he couldn't give up his wealth. Now, did he necessarily have to give everything away? No, he didn't have to give everything away, but he had to give much of it away. He had to give enough away so that he no longer was in love with his possessions. All right? And that's what Jesus is saying. And, he, and so what you see here, he walked away. Now, one of the things that I believe is that I believe this young man has eventually come to faith. I believe that. The story doesn't tell us that. It leaves it off. But I believe... That this, that this man eventually comes to faith. And why do I say this? Is because this is written by Luke. And Luke writes this story as a great historian who has gone back and interviewed people after the fact. And so I believe that Luke writes this story knowing that most likely at some point he interviews, maybe he interviews this man. He might very well have interviewed this man. He certainly interviewed the disciples who heard this colloquy. He heard that, and so he spoke to them, and so he writes this story. I believe that this young, this young man walks away knowing that Jesus loved him and cared for him and wanted him to look at his heart without pronouncing judgment on his heart. And as he came and looked at his heart and recognizing where he was, what he should have gone, is on his knees and said, Lord, forgive me, Father. I have sinned. I cannot live by these commandments. I am weak. Lord, I need help. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And at that moment, as you understand this, at that moment, God pours his grace into your life. And you're able to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And now, now you can live that kind of life because your sins are forgiven forever. All those lapses of your mind where you traveled a thousand miles here and a thousand miles there and lusted for so many different things uh, are all forgiven because he pours that everlasting peace and trust into your life. And so that's what that young man missed as he walked away sad. And so here's the lesson for you. As Je this is how Jesus wants us to react, how Jesus wants us to reach the lost. Uh, and so this is an incredible uh, Bible encounter. You see here how important it is to ask questions. When you want to speak to people, you speak to them in love. You have the kind of relationship with them that Jesus seems to have here so that you can ask questions. Who is good? When somebody says, I've been a good man, and then you say, who really is good other than God? And then you talk about Isaiah, that our righteousness is like filthy rags before the throne of God. And then maybe you might even mention what Leviticus 16 does and talks about what the high priest had to do to atone for himself. The high priest 
of all people, what he needed to do in order to atone to go into the Holy of Holies on that one day to atone for all the people of Israel, how he had to wash ritually numerous times and how the clothing had to be burned and how, and how sacrificial animals had to be sacrificed uh, and, and so many things in order for that one moment to go into the holy and holies and atone for a sinful people. All of that was wiped away when Jesus went to the cross. Wiped away so that the curtain in the holy of holies was torn in half. That moment, and we have secondary uh, historical evidence that talks about that, that this 66-foot-long curtain that was three or four inches thick ripped and torn almost like an explosion at the moment that Jesus expires on the cross. And you recognize that this is what the world needs to know. They can't live this kind of life. They can't walk where they are. They can't expect to get into heaven on their own. But you do it in love. You speak to them in love. You don't pronounce judgments, but you show them in love the mirror to themselves. Look. Look at goodness. Look at goodness. Only God is good. And when you recognize that only God is good, there's only one way out. Lord, I need your righteousness. I need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a tremendous example this is of how Jesus evangelizes to the lost. He knew that this young man never lived up to the commandments, but he didn't pronounce judgment on him. He never called him a loser or a liar. He never did that. He instead, he steady lifted up God. He showed what good is. He gave him a mirror to look into his own heart. And that's what God wants us to do. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Father, for this great example of Jesus as he reaches the lost. Lord, help us, Father, to treat the lost the same way. Help us to have love for those who are outside of your will as we spread the gospel. Help us, Father, to live the kind of life that Jesus wants us to live. Help us, Lord, to recognize that we are not good that even as we try to walk with you and, and serve you, that even every day as we do that, we're not good, but because God sees us through the filtering lens of you, Father, that we are good because of that alone. And so, Lord, I ask you to anoint our men, give them wisdom as they see the lost, help them to say the right words, and of overall, Lord, give them the love of Jesus Christ for those who need to be saved. Protect our men, be with them this week, and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.